Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. You're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And this is episode 176, Plato Latinus. Prolegomena to the history of Plato-Platonism and Platonist Esotericism in the Latin Middle Ages. Well, gentle listeners, the podcast has been hanging around in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time now. And it's time we turned our bloodshot gaze toward the Western Empire, the region stretching from somewhere in the Balkans all the way over to Britannia, also incorporating in practice the whole North African coastal region minus Egypt, because Egypt would remain stuck to the Eastern Empire. This was, very roughly speaking, the area where Latin was the dominant language, the lingua franca, just as Greek was in the Eastern realm. We're going to be talking a lot about language in this episode, because as late antiquity gradually moves toward this new thing known as the Middle Ages in the Western Empire, and as the Western Empire ceases to be an empire, uh, the history of Western esotericism will be determined in fundamental ways by who knows which languages. Now, we're going to talk about Greek and Latin a lot, but before we do that, let me just say that although I'm not an expert here, it's very clear to me that and studies have been done, quite a bit of scientific studies been done on this, the general picture in the Roman world as a whole was that being polyglot was a fact of everyday life for most people, right? Very much unlike in modern nation states where people tend to know one language and even bilingual countries like Canada, you favor one language and you know the other one enough to get through school, but you don't really necessarily know it that well. You're not fully bilingual. The reality in the Roman Empire seems to have been, for a lot of people, you spoke your sort of native language, whether that be Celtic, Punic, or a bunch of other languages like, you know, Pictish or Basque, the ancestor of modern Basque, or some Germanic tongue, or any number of Semitic languages in the Eastern realms. Egyptian, whatever the case may be. You spoke that at home with your family. Maybe you spoke two or three of those at home with your family, depending on the nature and makeup of your family, right? But then, depending if you're living in the East or West, you're probably going to need to know one of the big Roman languages that is either Greek or Latin for doing all kinds of official stuff, but also just for communicating with other people in this polyglot empire who didn't necessarily know your language. So if you're a Celt, living in Roman Britain in Londinium. You speak your local Celtic tongue, but maybe there's other Celts there who are also from Britannia, but who speak a completely different Celtic tongue. Well, you could both converse in Latin quite conveniently. That's the sort of picture we see with regional variations right the way across the empire. So many, many people were polyglot. So just please keep that in mind as we go forward and start talking about Greek and Latin as though they're these giant monolithic single, you know, language communities. They're not. Uh, but these languages are nevertheless very, very important. And where they're spoken, how they're spoken, how they're read and written and stuff like that is really important for the story of Western esotericism. First of all, Greek. Greek had, as we know, not only been the most important lingua franca of Eastern Rome, it had been, generally speaking, the primary language for writing uh, science, philosophy, poetry, drama, etc., etc., throughout the Roman period. Ever since the Romans began to absorb uh, forms like theater, epic poetry, philosophic dialogue, scientific treatise, etc., from their Greek neighbors, from about the 2nd century BCE onwards, right, enterprising Latin language writers had been busy 
trying to adapt Latin to make it a tool fit for expressing all these concepts and forms. And these concepts and forms were old hat by this point in Greece, right? But for the Romans, they were all new. The Romans didn't have a native drama tradition. They didn't have a native epic poetry tradition. They didn't have uh, works on geometry, right? They got all this stuff from the Greeks, and they started to think about how you could do that stuff in Latin. By no means trying to imply that there was no such thing as Latin language philosophy, Latin language science, etc. There definitely was. But what I am saying is that Greek remained, all in all, the preferred language for writing in a number of different fields. It was the language of scholarship, let's say, the dominant language of scholarship. Apuleius, whom we've talked about on the podcast before, from the far west of the empire near Carthage, he wrote in Latin, true, and it was at least his second language because he was probably a native Punic speaker. And we're very glad that he did write in Latin because his novel, The Metamorphoses, is an absolute masterpiece showing just how deep the transformation of Latin into an expressive, richly evocative language went in the second century. But then let's take a counterexample. Plotinus, teaching at Rome in the third century, and including members of the senatorial classes among his students, many of whom, if not all of whom, will have been native Latin speakers, right? Plotinus taught and wrote in Greek. If he even spoke Latin, we never hear about it from him or from Porphyry, his biographer. It probably wasn't something worth mentioning. For these Hellenes, and remember, Hellenes were made, not born. So the fact that Plotinus and Porphyry were Egyptian and Phoenician, respectively, is irrelevant to their Hellenic status, right? For these Hellenes, these educated Greek speakers, one assumes that the only reason to learn Latin would have been in the event that they needed to get some official business done, since the administration was run in Latin. Uh, and should that become necessary? Why learn Latin when you could have a handy bilingual slave who could just run and take care of business for you, which will have been the solution for many a native Greek speaker in the imperial capital. Now, let's look at Latin for a moment. I mentioned the administration, and this is somewhat central. The Emperor Theodosius I, who reigned from 379 to 395. So think of him as like the guy who basically saw out the 4th century, right? He was the final Roman emperor to rule both East and West. After his reign, the administrative split introduced by Constantine, but already sort of implicit in Diocletian's extreme reforms, this split became permanent in retrospect. Justinian tried to reconquer a lot of the West, but it didn't take. The two halves of the empire basically began to go their separate ways. The West succumbing by the end of the 5th century to total collapse into a number of Germanic-ruled successor states, at best, or stateless anarchies with warlords jockeying for position at worst, while the Eastern Empire consolidated itself and went on ruling the Balkans, Asia Minor, the Near Eastern Littoral, and Egypt for centuries to come, with some territorial give or take along the way, but nevertheless, this was a functioning Roman Empire into the future. It's one of the reasons it doesn't make sense to talk about the Middle Ages in uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, because they never went Middle Ages, they never went feudal, etc. Anyway, this cleavage between the two halves of the empire is reflected in the linguistic picture. Knowledge of Latin was always somewhat patchy in the East, but uh, two of its main vectors, so that would be like the, the Roman administration and the army, both of which used Latin, these important sort of social and political vectors had always kept some Latin on everyone's radar. Now, 
the army as a Latin-speaking institution was in decline in the East. We don't know exactly when this happened, but over the course of the next several centuries, the language of the army switches to Greek or to um, various Germanic dialects, because, of course, the East Roman army was to a large degree made up of uh, Germanic mercenaries. Meanwhile, while Justinian's massive law codes, known as the Corpus Juris Civilis, were issued in the years 529 to 534, this was the sort of the greatest digest of Roman law ever undertaken and still the basis for much European law. This was done in Latin, but this was pretty much the last gasp of Latin as a language in the East. After this point, the government, the Roman government, just starts speaking Greek and, and issuing proclamations in Greek, and they don't bother with Latin very much. I'm oversimplifying, but this is a, maybe a convenient way to think about what happens with Latin in the East. Now, this cleavage of the empire in two had a mirror effect in the West. Knowledge of Greek went into a steady decline from the late 4th century onwards. And this is where our story really intersects with the history of Western esotericism, because here's the short version in a nutshell. Loads and loads of the rich textual culture of esoteric ideas that we've been talking about on this podcast, including most of Plato and most of Platonism, most of the Greek language esoteric religious material, like the Hermetica, the Chaldean oracles, most of the occult science material, like astrological, divinatory, magical, and alchemical texts, and to be fair, most of the science material, like, for example, Euclid's Elements, the, the most uh, influential geometry textbook in history, most of this material was now inaccessible to most of the Western European area and became more so as centuries went on. So this wasn't some kind of precipitous decline across the board, like Rome fell and suddenly no one knew Greek anymore. Plenty of people knew and read Greek into the 6th century, and even into the 7th century we see plenty of people who can read Greek, but it's less and less in the Latin lands. And these people who did read Greek seem to have found it increasingly a foreign language. They learned it as a prestige language for various reasons, either because they were trying to plug into Hellenic culture and the legacy of Hellenic culture, or the sciences right? So maybe they're interested in geometry or something like that. Or because they are interested in reading important Christian documents like the scriptures and the early fathers in, in the original tongue, right? Either way, they're still dipping into Greek, but it's getting harder and harder. For hundreds of years now, the poems of Homer had been quoted upon Hadrian's wall in the far north of Britannia. While in North Africa, intellectuals cited the original Greek of Plato or Zeno in their leisurely discussions over dinner, um, talking about the good life and uh, the nature of human existence in a sort of cultured philosophical context. All of this is coming to an end in the 5th century. And it's when I say it's not a precipitous decline, it's not an overnight decline, but it is kind of precipitous, actually, as these things go. Uh, we don't have really good numbers, and I'm no expert on the decline of Greek language skills in the Western Empire of late antiquity, but the general picture is pretty clear. So if we if we do a quick uh, survey of history, in the first century BCE, the Roman elites of the late Republic, do you remember Varro and Cicero and their uh, Pythagorean friend, Nigidius Figulus, that we spoke about back in the podcast? Anyway, these sorts of folks had begun learning Greek in full earnest. And the huge influx of Greek slaves into Roman society, because remember, uh, Rome in this period conquered all the Hellenistic kingdoms in succession. This huge influx of Greek slaves had made educating the children of the elite into fluent speakers of Greek a breeze. By the first century CE, every educated Roman prided him or herself on fluency in Greek. 
Julius Caesar's actual last words, pake Shakespeare, were in Greek. You don't say your last words in a language unless it's kind of seen as a prestigious and uh, elite language and apt for expressing important pithy comments, right? Now, in the imperial centuries which followed, this remained the pattern. This is what we've been talking about in terms of Greco-Roman Hellenism in previous episodes, right? Now we are at about the end of the 4th century, and we start to find slowly but increasingly a lack of fluency in the Latin-speaking areas of the empire in Greek, and of course much less knowledge of Latin in the Eastern realms. Around the beginning of the 5th century CE, we will see Augustine of Hippo explaining really basic Greek terms to his readership, because at least some of his audience is totally unfamiliar with Greek. Now, this on its own doesn't tell us as much as you might think, because Augustine's intended audience, his intended readership will probably have included a lot of less educated Christians, right? He's a little more egalitarian, maybe, in his uh, intended audience than a Cicero, who's explaining uh, recherche Greek terms to the Roman public in the first century BCE in a completely different context. And yet, Augustine having this sort of <laughs> extremely weak grasp of the history of Greek philosophy and trying to explain it to his uh, readers of On the City of God or explaining really stock uh, philosophic terms in Greek, which had, had long been in a normal kind of Latin lexicon. Like these are words that people had been using for hundreds of years in Latin. They're just Greek loan words. This is kind of a sign of the times. Fewer and fewer Latin speakers knew Greek as late antiquity went on, knew any Greek at all. Now, contrary to a common misapprehension, uh, we don't ever seem to have a situation where Greek just completely dies out in Western Europe. The Greek language of the Christian scriptures and of important early church fathers, because remember, the vast majority of early uh, Christian writing was in Greek, and Syriac and Latin and so on, but especially Greek, this saw to it that the language could never absolutely lose its prestige, even when the vast majority of readers turned to their Latin translations like the Vulgate Bible, produced by Jerome, who will be appearing in coming episodes. But knowledge of Greek progressively becomes an extremely narrow specialism over the centuries which follow. And of course, in some places, it just died out. In places like post-Roman Britain, we have every reason to think that hardly anyone could even read or write any language, much less read or write an exotic prestige language like Greek. Latin, if you were lucky, or maybe you could do a runic inscription in Pictish, but that's it. Looking forward a few centuries... Charles Martel, the first Holy Roman Emperor, crowned by the Pope at Rome in the easy-to-remember year 800, Charlemagne, for it is he, would attempt to sponsor a revival of learning at his court, often referred to as the Carolingian Re Renaissance. Maybe I'm pronouncing it. Maybe it's Carolingian. I've never known how to say it, but I'm going to call it Carolingian. This was a nice initiative from a Frankish king who couldn't read or write himself, but anyway, he sponsored lots of scholars, and there was a lot of writing we have Greek grammar books for students and word lists, sort of Latin to Greek vocabulary building glossaries among the surviving Carolingian manuscripts. And these are very interesting. They're more or less shoddy, all of them. And it would have been very, very difficult to learn functioning Greek skills from these uh, materials without a native speaker to work with. How many such native Greek speakers were around at Charlemagne's court? and in Western lands, generally speaking. It's hard to say with any accuracy, but it's definitely fair to say not a lot. In the 7th century, the Greek-speaking Theodore of Tarsus had traveled to England to take up the role of Archbishop of Canterbury, 
But when he got there, did he find anyone interested in learning Greek? Eh, unclear. Bede, the English church historian, whose ecclesiastical history of the English people was composed around the year 731, so 8th century guy, he somehow knew Greek. So there was a little center of Greek learning in uh, Northumbria at the time. The Carolingian Greek learning materials that we just talked about from a few centuries later are, generally speaking, adaptations of classical era texts designed to help Greek speakers learn Latin, right? So Greeks, many times in the Roman Empire, or Greek speakers, native Greek speakers, um, or Hellenes from all over the empire, would only learn Latin if they had to. Like, for example, if they wanted to become a lawyer, or otherwise kind of deal with the machinery of the Roman state. And for them, there was this sort of genre of teach yourself Latin for Greek speakers. And a lot of these Carolingian texts seem to be like reverse engineering those texts to flip it so that it's Greek for Latin speakers. And you can imagine the results of this sort of one-to-one flippage were not entirely successful in terms of a uh, practical program for learning a language. Anyway, in these lands, these Latin, Latinate lands, Greek had gone from being the language which would, it was assumed everyone knew, everyone who's educated, with Latin as a difficult tongue which might need to be mastered for, you know, practical purposes in various ways. Now Latin was the language of the state and the church, and Greek was a difficult tongue which had to be mastered if one wanted to plumb the depths of the wisdom of Christianity, or maybe if one was had an unseemly interest in Hellenism. Later in the podcast, we shall be discussing the great John the Irishman, a.k.a. John Eriugena, who worked at Charlemagne's court. He did know Greek, and used it to translate the esoteric wisdom of the pseudo-Dionysius into Latin, thereby re-injecting a much-needed dose of late Athenian Platonist metaphysics back into the main line of Western Christianity in the 9th century. All of this background is essential to the story of Western esotericism for a number of crucial reasons, and we'll be leaning on this history a lot as we go forward in the podcast. So I thought it was good to lay it out in kind of simple historicist terms, especially for people who aren't uh, specialists in late antiquity or in the kind of transfer into the Middle Ages. And all of this background is essential for the story of Western esotericism for a number of crucial reasons, and we should be exploring these in more detail in the next few episodes each of which approaches the question of what's happening in the Western Empire as things fall apart from a slightly different angle. But the story of Pseudo-Dionysius' fate in the West is, is pretty instructive as to the general trend. In the East, the Pseudo-D was canonical and widely read from whenever his works were first published uh, around the 6th century until, well, today. Now, you can quibble with that because... His canonicity and stuff was indeed debated. But anyway, that's the broad strokes of it. He's part of Christianity, the Pseudo-Dionysius. Thus, Eastern Christianity has an unbroken tradition of outrageously apophatic, metaphysically adventurous, and just plain psychedelic uh, writings, all being read as the work of an important early convert to Christianity mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Dionysius. So this is a major avenue for esoteric speculations, for the formation of fascinating apophatic ideas of the encounter with God, or rather with God's absence, and so on. In Eastern Christianity, it was, in short, a salutary dose of esoteric Platonist thought at the heart of the developing orthodoxy. 
which Western Christianity lacked for several centuries until Eryugena made his translations. It could be and was read in the East in tandem with ideas going back to origin, but filtered through the Cappadocian fathers, whom we've also devoted some time to in the podcast. And then you had potentially a metaphysically rich, transcendence-contemplating Christianity, where the assumption was that although orthodoxy is, of course, right about everything, there's always this blank space on our maps of reality. There's always a troublesome, undefinable area left fallow for the inexpressible to grow in rank profusion. And that that is where God is to be found. Or rather, that is where God is to be not found, but endlessly sought with erotic longing descended as much from Plato's Phaedrus and Symposium as from the Song of Songs read allegorically in the style of origin. None of this uh, richness is available to thinkers in the West for many centuries, and their Christianity suffered for it. Now, this brings us to a preview of the very next episode. Let's talk about Plato for a minute. Plato is, as we know, the grandfather of Western esotericism. And wherever his ideas go, esoteric speculations often follow. Not always, but often. So what was the presence of Plato in Western Europe during the Middle Ages? Well, gentle listeners, with one important exception, none of Plato existed in Latin throughout this period. Plato is basically lost in the West. The exception is the creation myth from the Timaeus. Not the whole Timaeus, but just the creation myth, so the Atlantis story kind of gets lost. And this work was translated by a certain Chalcidius in the 4th century. Actually, Chalcidius wrote a sort of Latin language commentary and translation on the myth sometime in the 4th century. For the Latin Middle Ages, Chalcidius's Timaeus myth was Plato, right? The only Plato they had until the 12th century, when one Henricus Aristippus translated the Mino and the Fido into Latin. And then later on, of course, we get Marsilio Ficino at Florence translating all of Plato in the 15th century, and so on and so on. So Plato is basically lost vis-a-vis his actual writings in the West. But of course, the Westerners had some sources for Platonism, but a weirdly lopsided selection. They had the Latin language works of Apuleius, so a solid 2nd century Platonist structure is laid out by that intriguing author. They also had the Latin translation of uh, a hermetic writing known in Latin as the Asclepius, which often was transmitted along with Apuleius's works. So there was a little window onto late antique Platonistic esoteric religion, but no Chaldean oracles. And they had the works of two late antique Latin writers of particular importance, whom we haven't yet had the pleasure of discussing here on the Schwepp, but who are coming very soon. I refer, of course, to Macrobius, who wrote sometime in the 5th century, most likely, and whose commentary on the dream of Scipio is an astrologically infused Platonist reading of Cicero, reading Plato, It gets complicated, gentle listeners, but we are up for the challenge. So we'll be talking about Macrobius very soon. And there is also, of course, Martianus Capella, one of the most fascinating and most underread authors of late antiquity. And the man who, along with Boethius, the uh, Roman senator who's on the consolation of philosophy, written from prison, was kind of a last gasp 
of the philosophic way of life in the West, as everything crumbled, um, these two men's work together firmly set the agenda for medieval education in the West. They sort of set the higher education curriculum for the Latin Middle Ages and made sure that the seven liberal arts were conceived of as what they actually are, namely an initiatory cursus into higher divine wisdom. So, American liberal arts college students, you are not just getting a degree to kill time before you enter the mill of capitalism, you are pursuing cosmic ascent and divinization. Anyway, I hope that's maybe whetted some appetites for things to come in the uh, Latin coverage of the Schwepp. And indeed, we're now beginning and embarking on a a little mini-series of uh, developments in the Latin world. In the very next episode, we shall discuss Chalcidius's fateful version of the Timaeus myth with uh, Gretchen Radamschils, who has just come out with an important book on the subject. And while Chalcidius isn't the whole story of the transmission and reception of Plato in the Latinate Middle Ages, not by a long shot, it's nevertheless a very important piece of it. And all the choices made by Chalcidius were to have very long-lasting ramifications for Western esotericism in the Latinate world. But there's, of course, another way in which Platonism was transmitted, uh, sort of disconnected from either Plato's own works and the works of his polytheist followers, so disconnected from, you know, sort of school Platonism as well, and from the highly Platonistic Christianity of the East, as represented by Origen, by the Cappadocians, Evagrius, Didymus the Blind, and many others. I'm thinking of what you might call the native Platonistic or even Platonizing Christianities of the West, of thinkers like Marius Victorinus, and most crucially, Augustine of Hippo. We find ideas in these authors which eventually can be traced back to Plato, but, and this is especially the case with Augustine and others like him, these ideas are so bent and mangled to fit a complex and hardcore set of Christian dogmatic assumptions that you really end up with what you might call mutant strains of Platonism within Western, Western Christianity. And this too, of course, has major repercussions for the history of Western esotericism, right? So having discussed Chalcidius in the next episode, we shall turn to Marius Victorinus and Augustine and look at them, not only in terms of the transmission of Platonist ideas naturally, but just more generally in terms of their significance for Western esotericism. In the case of Augustine, we're looking at that strange animal, the anti-esotericist, who's completely essential in understanding the history of Western esotericism. So under, try to understand him, we shall. And that is our Plato Latinus. There's a, not a lot of Latin Plato, and not a lot of people could read him in Greek. And, you know, this shows in the record, aside from some very old fragments of Plato on papyrus, surviving from antiquity in the sands of Egypt, our manuscripts of Plato all come from medieval East Roman scriptoria, laboriously copied on vellum based on earlier exemplars now lost. In the West, Plato just disappears, more or less. This isn't to say that the idea of Plato disappears, however. The reputation of Plato for a number of things, among them everything from arch-pagan deceiver and evil sorcerer even, all the way over to valuable pre-Christian witness to the truths of the faith and useful ally in arguing that the soul is immortal. Um, this complex kind of mix of ideological reimaginings of Plato was very much alive through the Latin Middle Ages, and we'll be discussing that reception history as the podcast progresses. For now, though, 
I hope that this foray into some important non-esoteric historical material has been helpful. It's pretty important to know this stuff. And the twin fact that a lot of people think that when the city of Rome fell, the Roman Empire fell, and that was it, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that there there really is kind of a few centuries of near silence with regard to Western esotericism from Western Europe. These things make it important for us to go back over these pretty familiar historical circumstances and just kind of keep in mind what's going on in the big picture. And I thought that before diving into the specifics of late antique esoteric um, Latin culture as written, uh, it might be helpful to give the sweeping broad strokes picture of where things are going. So join us for our series of episodes kind of looking at developments in the Western Roman Empire, starting with our episode on Chalcidius's version of the Timaeus. Next time, moving on through Marius Victorinus and Augustine, and finally the palate cleansing exploration of the incredible late Platonism of Macrobius. And until then, be like the actual date when the final Mithraeum on the Rhine frontier was closed down for good and stay esoteric into the indeterminate future. <laughs>